Absalom, David's son, was an amazing political motivator and manipulator. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. My name is Rod Hemper. And I'm Janice. And this is Bible Discovery TV. We are learning the Bible as we go through it. Second Samuel chapter 19. We're going to be talking about that and more in just a minute. In the meantime, Corey and Ryan are here with what they're sharing. Today, I'm going to be taking a look at uh, potential remains of King David's palace in modern Jerusalem. Ryan? Today, I'm studying gates because in the ancient Eastern world, gates were very, very important, not just for security purposes, but also culturally. Very interesting. Yes, gates were not around villages, but that's interesting. That's another story. Anyway, Janice. Today, I'm going to talk about brokenness. All right, very good. So this is time to get out your Bible guide and get out the most important book of all, it is the Bible, and it was written about 2,000 years ago. And this book will reveal what God is telling us right now and today. Let's read it. Second Samuel 19, verses 1 through 8. And Joab was told, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard it said that day, The king is grieved for his son. And the people stole back into the city that day, as people who are ashamed steal away when they flee in battle. But the king covered his face, and the king cried out with a loud voice, O my son Absalom, O Absalom, my son, my son! Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, Today you have disgraced all your servants, who today have saved your life, the lives of your sons and daughters, the lives of your wives and the lives of your concubines, in that you love your enemies and hate your friends. For you have declared today that you regard neither princes nor servants. For today I perceive that if Absalom had lived, and all of us had died today, then it would have pleased you well. Now therefore, arise, go out and speak comfort to your servants, for I swear by the Lord, if you do not go out, not one will stay with you this night, and that will be worse for you than all the evil that has befallen you from your youth until now. Then the king arose, and sat in the gate. And they told all the people, saying, There is the king sitting in the gate. So all the people came before the king, for everyone of Israel had fled to his tent. Second Samuel chapter 19, verses 1 through 8. Second Samuel 16, 17, 18, and 19. This is what we read today as we continue to go through the Bible in one year. It's very, very exciting. Now, we're in the time of Absalom and his rebellion. Now, Absalom was a handsome man, and he was a good politician. He knew how to manipulate people and situations to make himself the king. The reign of Absalom, however, was brief and a major flaw in the life of his father, David. David, the rightful king of Israel, had to figure out how to deal with his fallen son. 
Hearing about the death of Absalom, his son, David's public and dramatic grief over Absalom caused what should have been a day of victorious celebration for the people into one of shame and mourning. Confronted by Joab, that's the leader of his army, with the reality of what his words and actions have done to the morale of the people, David got a grip sat in the gate as king and spoke comforting words to the people. If David hadn't, David's warriors would not have remained loyal to him. Now, this is very important to remember. This is a time when David's failure as a father comes into play. And this is the time when we need to understand that God designs in families and constructs and gives his will to families who generate their own will of God as they see it from the Lord and as God gives it to them. Very important. And so today, that's what we're going to do. Take your Bible guide, turn to today's passage. If you don't have one, why not? Call us or write us. Or you can go to Bible Discovery TV. And when you go there, click on the Bible guide page. It says March. It's the Bible guide page, and it'll take you directly to the guide. And uh, well, it'll take you to the donate page first. Thank you for your donations. Let me just say this, that we very much appreciate those donations. They help us now. At the time when things are challenging for us, they, they really help us. So thank you so much. And we pray for you. And we do that on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at 3.30 to 4.30. Every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, we're live on Facebook, YouTube, and Bible Discovery. So make sure that you hear that and do that. Now, getting a grip. Getting a grip. All right, let's get a grip here. Lord, I pray that you would help us as we try to get a grip. <laughs> We're reading about David pulling it together and David getting right about what's happened. And help us, Lord, to read and to see from this real example, this reality of his family, how that we can avoid the turmoil and the pain in our family if we pay attention to your word and pay attention to God. Thank you, Lord. Help us to do that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. This is very interesting today. Watch this. Now, 2 Samuel 19, verses 1 to 4. Here is what the Bible says. And Joab, the leader of David's army, was told, Behold, Joab, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom, his son. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard it said that day, the king is grieved for his son. And the people stole back into the city that day as people who are ashamed steal away when they flee in battle. But the king covered his face and the king cried out with a loud voice, Oh, my son, Absalom. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Wow. It's incredible. David's reaction to Absalom's death changed a day of victory into one of shame and mourning. Beloved, listen carefully. We should build our life based on God's plan, not ours. I can tell you something, that David's family troubles did not come because God had caused them. David caused them himself. There is a very specific passage in Deuteronomy chapter 17 that kings are to read 
and understand the word of God, but kings are not to multiply wives, they're not to multiply horses, and they're not to do any of that in Israel. And that was given by Moses years before. You see, when we get away from the Bible, when we move away from it, we start to evolve ourselves into something else. That's wrong, beloved. That is wrong. There's only one way to put it. It's wrong. And that means it's not right. And beloved, we need to come back to the word of God. We need to bring our lives and our societies back in place. I know many people say, well, that's the old-fashioned way. Well, it may be, but it's the only way for us to understand how to deal with sin, coming to Jesus Christ and inviting them into our life as Lord. Very important. 2 Samuel 19, verses 5 to 7. Remember Joab. He's the head of the army of David. Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, Today you have disgraced all your servants, who today saved your life, the lives of your sons and daughters, the lives of your wives, and the lives of your concubines, David, in that you love your enemy and hate your friends? For you have declared today that you regard neither princes nor servants for today. I perceive that if Absalom had lived and all of us had died today, then it would be it would have been pleasing you well. Now, Joab says, therefore arise and go out and speak comfort to your servants. Comfort! For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go out, no one will stay with you this night. And that will be worse for you than all of the evil that has befallen you from your youth until now. Wow, that's incredible. Second point. Joab told David the truth about Absalom's rebellion. We can only deal with our enemies and life circumstances when we submit to God, beloved. When we come to Christ and submit to God, we begin to forgive. That's a beautiful thing, let me tell you. Now, we don't do it, but the Holy Spirit comes in and gives us energy where we think we don't have any, because we don't. The Holy Spirit helps us, beloved. The Holy Spirit empowers us to do so. Very important. Now, look at this, verse 8. Then the king arose and sat in the gate, and they told all the people, saying, There is the king sitting at the gate. So all the people came before the king, for every one of Israel had fled to his tent. Okay, this is amazing. You see, David pulled himself together and celebrated with his people. When we stop feeling sorry for ourselves, we can work better for the Lord. Beloved, how many times have I messed up royally? I mean, major mess ups. And I have a tendency to feel sorry for myself and sit there and say, oh, Lord, I'm terrible. I'm... God says, listen, I've forgiven you. Now get up and go make it right. Get up and start doing it right. Beloved, we need to do that. It's time for us. Not to sit on the back porch and not and hide from everybody with eight months of food and all of that. It's time for us to begin to go forward and begin to do the things in this world that God has called us to do His way. Not our way, His way, the right way. That's what we need to do today, beloved. Now think that through because that's very, very important as we continue to read these scriptures and see these fallacies that David emerged in. 
Hi, Rod Hembry. We go through the Bible in one year. It's exciting. It's great. And you can join us by searching Bible Discovery TV on your phone. That's right, on your phone, your iPhone or your Android phone. And when you do so, you'll find the app. You can download the app and watch it anytime you want. Never miss a program right here on Bible Discovery TV. We'll see you there. Now, in today's reading, we see the exile of David come full circle. So he is able to go back to Jerusalem and re-inhabit his palace in the city of David, also called Jerusalem. And, and that occurs in the end of 2 Samuel chapter 19. So today, you and I are going to be focusing in on what the Bible tells us about King David's palace. And intriguingly, we're also going to look at a really good candidate for the remains of his palace that have been excavated today. Take a look. With excavations beginning in 2005, prominent archaeologist Alat Matsar believes that she may have found remnants of King David's palace in Jerusalem. Many years prior to excavating, she had theorized that King David's palace was likely just outside of the walls of the Jebusite city of Jerusalem that David originally conquered. She believes her reasons are both practical and biblical. She reasoned that since the city's fortified area at that time was quite small and densely populated, that David would have either had to level a small area inside the wall, or he could have built a palace outside of the wall as he planned to expand the city anyway to eventually include the Temple Mount to the north. Mitzar hypothesized the palace would have been located just north of where the great defensive fortress of the city, the Fortress of Zion, is believed to have been. This northern location is on the natural ascent to the Temple Mount, which she believed also worked with the Bible's description of David's movements during a Philistinian attack, where he is said to have gone down to the stronghold, presumably from his palace that had been built for him by specialized foreign workmen from Tyre. The idea is this downward movement recorded in the Bible points to David's palace being just north of the defensive walls that's geographically higher in elevation than the rest of the city. Once trowels hit the ground, Metzar did reveal evidence of a grand building with walls that were defensively six to eight feet thick. This building seems to have been integrated with something today called the stepstone structure. The stepstone structure is a massive man-made support foundation that artificially expands the surface area of the ridge on which the city was built. Next to this and connected to it is Matsar's building named the Large Stone Structure after handmade fine stones that it was built out of. The decorative top of an ancient pillar was even found that's now believed to have come from the Large Stone Structure, evidence of its careful, lavish construction. The dating of the building is somewhat contested, but Matsar believes it dates to around 1000 BC, right when David would have been ruling. So there we go. More to be said about the different Jerusalem palaces, because we know, for example, that right away when Solomon becomes king of Israel, he builds another palace in Jerusalem, uh, kind of adjacent to David's palace. Uh, so there's, there's more archaeology to kind of wade through, but this is a good introduction to the very early royal um, architecture of ancient Israel. You know, it, it, it's really something when I was first in Israel, they told me, I said to Jim Catalan, I went with Jim back in 1991 before they had built a lot of these walls and everything else. And I said, man, they're just always, they had discovered 
the city of David and all of that. Mm-hmm. And I said, man, they, they've discovered everything. And the person from the IAA was there and he was kind of smiling. And then Jim looked at me and laughed. He said, you can dig anywhere in Israel and mm-hmm. find something from the past. And they are still finding other things in the past. Oh, for sure. And I mean, it makes sense because it's a it's a very small piece of land comparatively in the world. But so much history has happened there. So, so much history. Thousands and thousands of years. So yeah, it makes and, sense. And, and, you know, you go to places like uh, Jericho and the rest of it and you see this and you go, you have layers of history mm-hmm. that you go back. Well, that's from that time. That's from that time. Whoa, that's way back. And uh, so it's really, really interesting. Thank mm-hmm. you, Corey, for that. Ryan? Yeah, well, today our reading assignment is Second Samuel chapter 16 to 19. And this is the tragic account of the death of David's son, Absalom. And when David hears the news about the death of his son, the Bible says that he went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. Now, notice that detail. David went up to the chamber over the gate. Chamber over the gate? Really? Yeah. In the ancient world, gates weren't merely a barred fence or an afterthought. They were very, very elaborately designed because they were very important. They served as both security for the enclosed city and as a social hub. Check it out. Well, the gateway generally serves in a lesser capacity today. In the ancient world, gates were a necessity. While they served as openings for sanctuaries, citadels, tombs, prisons, and the like, the most important type of gate was a city's gates, as they provided the needed protection from outside invaders. Gates would remain open during the day, but at night they were shut and locked. While possessing the key to a city's gates meant privilege and power, possessing the gates themselves meant even more power. In fact, to possess the gates was to possess the city. Thus, to prevent the city from falling into enemy hands, gates had to be unbreachable. For this reason, most gates consisted of double doors plated with metal, since wooden doors without iron plating were easily set on fire. Some gates were made of brass, as was the gate called Beautiful of King Herod's Temple, which was more costly than nine others of the outer court that had been poured over with gold and silver. Still others were made of solid stone. As a matter of fact, massive stone doors have been found in some of the ancient towns of Syria. These single slabs are several inches thick and 10 feet high, and turn on pivots above and below. Ordinarily, gates swung on projections that fitted into sockets on the post and were secured with bars of wood or of metal. While earlier gates were constructed on an angle in order to prevent enemies from making a straight run at it with a battering ram, later designs consisted of a three-peered gateway. So even though the attackers could hit it straight on, the enemy forces would now have to break down three doors to gain entrance to the city. Still, even with all the security, gates were naturally the weakest points in a city's walls, which is why they were flanked by towers. Nevertheless, city gateways didn't just serve as a measure of security. As a matter of fact, it was at the gates of a city that the people of the ancient Near East went for legal business, conversation, bargaining, and news. Markets were held at the gate, and the main items sold there often gave it its name. Possible examples of this are the Sheep Gate, Fish Gate, and Horse Gate, which are referred to in the Book of Nehemiah. The gate was also the place where people met to hear an important announcement, or the reading of the law, or where the elders transacted legal business. The gate was also the king's or chief's place of audience, which is why there was often a ruler's seat there. City gates also had several rooms or chambers over the gateway where commercial, civic, or military affairs could be conducted, or even be a lodging for strangers. 
King David, who'd been sitting at the city gate, retreated to such a room to mourn when he learned about the tragic death of his son Absalom. So as you can see, gates were very important in the ancient world. And in today's reading, we see David retreating to one of the gate's upper chambers to weep. Now, of course, something I didn't have time to get into in the segment was that gateways are also used figuratively in the Bible. For instance, in Matthew 16, 18, they're figurative of satanic power. Jesus says to Peter there, And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And in Isaiah 38.10, they're figurative of death. It says there, In the prime of my life I shall go to the gates of Sheol. In Psalm 118, 19, and 20, they represent righteousness. It says, Open to me the gates of righteousness. And in Matthew 7.13, they're also used figuratively of salvation and damnation. Jesus here says, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. You know, this sort of language God uses would have been particularly meaningful and powerful to those who lived in cultures where literal gates were so very important. Now, this is interesting because there's a couple of places I can think of that uh, gates are also mentioned. Samson's, uh, you know, his expose as a judge and all of that. One of the things he did was the Philistines, he grabs their gates mm -hmm. and rips them out. And this is a serious <laughs> Yeah, that issue. Was, that's like a yeah. big deal. That's a lot of strength. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's a lot of strength, but it also takes away their protection, mm -hmm. right? Because a gate, you know, was a was a weak spot in the city wall, and so they they went through. You know, as as Ryan could definitely attest to, they went through great means to develop gates that were. Uh, designed so if an enemy broke through the first gate then they'd have they'd, they'd be attacked or it was just really interesting how much uh, strategy went into developing city gates so the fact that he just ripped up their like the the doorposts of their gates and, and ran off with them would have been a very concerning thing and it would have been him yeah. going you think you're protected I don't think so he ran off with them yeah he did uh, and the other thing that that comes to mind is of course the the book of Ruth, um, when Boaz makes the deal with the Redeemer, mm -hmm. he's the yeah, second the Redeemer, mm -hmm. but he's the first. He says, and it says, at the gate, mm -hmm. the yeah. ten men came and he made, because all business transactions were done at the gates of Bethlehem. The ones right? that wanted to be seen by the elders, yeah. yeah. And we see that with Lot back mm -hmm. in Sodom as well in Genesis. He was one of the leaders mm -hmm. of that place. So, really so interesting. It, you know, it is interesting. And as you begin to understand this, then you, you realize that I see and, and it, you know, because when you learn what's important to people, uh, then you understand how their culture was developed and what they did at the gates. Now that's interesting. Do you see what happens? See what happens here? We we get on a thought and we just we just get going, and I think that's wonderful. That's what the Word of God does. It's not a book that should be dusty and up on your shelf and untouched. These are some of the discussions that you can have, and I hope that you are getting back into your church. I hope you are getting back into fellowship with one another because that is so important. You know, we see this tragic story with Absalom and David, and 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 you can just almost feel the grief that David has for his son. And he is just, he is just crying out. And, and, and then he realizes, you know, David's heart is on his sleeve most of the time. And God even says, you know, 
He chose David as king because he had a heart that sought after God. And God looks not at the outward appearance, but but at the inward appearance. And, And here we have David just in such mourning. But Joab confronts him and says, you know, David, and we've read it in the portion today, so I don't have to talk about it again. But, you know, it, it doesn't say it specifically, but we can, we can see that it looks like David took Joab's advice and he did go down to the gate. And the people came out to hear what the king had to say. David could set aside that morning to do what he knew that he was called to do. And he was called and anointed by God to be king of Israel at this time. So he gathered himself together and he went and he spoke to the people. You know, my notes today, I called it brokenness because, you know, there is great sadness and loss in this world and in our lives. Some of the things are created by decisions and actions that we've done. Some of the things that we grieve over are things that have been caused in our life, things that have have happened. We go through these different seasons in our life. But the important thing for us to remember, as we can see in David's life, he was not a perfect man, but his heart was always willing to come to God in his sorrow, in his joy. We can read it in the Psalms. But let's remember to bring our mourning our sorrows to God because he's, he's close to the brokenhearted. And I just want to give you a, a, just a few verses of, of, of the Bible that articulate what I'm trying to say. Psalm 34, verse 18. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as have a contrite spirit. A contrite spirit means someone who is repentant. If you're remorseful of something that you've done, Bring that to God because he is faithful to forgive you of that. Psalm 147 verse 3. He, God, heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. This is a great example of the good shepherd. When his sheep get, when a a, a shepherd sees that his sheep are hurt, he's the one that attends to their wounds and binds them up and heals them. Luke 4 verse 18. Jesus declared of himself, From the scroll of Isaiah, chapter 61, Jesus said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. It's only Jesus Christ. It's only our relationship in him through his finished work on the cross, that we can attain these things. If you're broken, if you're troubled, if you're in mourning, if you're just so sad, if you feel that all hope is gone, come to the Lord today and invite him to come into your life. Accept him as Lord, get into his word, get into a good fellowship with other believers and call upon his name. He is close as the mention of his name.